Long Reads is supported by Pluto Press. Pluto have developed a new list of audiobooks for some of their most popular titles. One book that's now available is Make Bosses Pay, Why We Need Unions by Eve Livingston. Henry Chango Lopez of the Independent Workers' Union of Great Britain describes it as a brave manifesto for trade unions at a pivotal moment in our history, expressed through voices from the front lines of that fight. You can order Make Bosses Pay by going to tiny.one slash jacobin. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. During the 1980s, Japan seemed like it might overtake the US to become the world's largest economy. Long before he turned his attention to China, Donald Trump called for the US to engage in a trade war with its Japanese challenger. I think a lot of people are tired of watching other countries ripping off the United States. This is a great country. We let Japan come in and dump everything right into our markets and everything. It's not free trade. If you ever go to Japan right now and try to sell something, forget about it, Oprah. Just forget about it. It's almost impossible. They laugh at us. Behind our backs, they laugh at us because of our own stupidity. But since a property bubble burst in the early 90s, Japan has become a byword for economic stagnation. That hasn't prevented the ruling Liberal Democratic Party from maintaining its status as the most successful political party in the rich capitalist world. Our guest today is Kristin Surak. She teaches sociology at the London School of Economics, and she's the author of Making Tea, Making Japan, Cultural Nationalism in Practice. What impact did the collapse of the Japanese real estate bubble in the early 90s have on Japanese politics and society? The impact was uh, pretty deep going. Uh, It was a real turning point for Japan. And I think to understand how it was that, it's important to go back to look at um, how Japan transitioned out of World War II. It's basically a defeated country, heavily, heavily destroyed. Um, It's often forgotten, for example, that the firebombings of Tokyo killed more individuals than the atomic bomb attacks individually. So, you know, in in terms of real estate itself and property, it was uh, pretty much so much of the country was flattened. After that, in the 1960s, there was a very strong focus on uh, capitalist production and economic expansion, actually coming straight out of the war. But by the 1960s, Japan had really taken off as no other country had in the world until that point. There was 10% growth annually across the 1960s, which um, only China and only very recently has has been able to match. And it was able to do that because it was very cheap to export. So the Japanese yen was pegged against the US dollar at 365 yen to the dollar. Um, And so, you know, as soon as it ramped up industrial production again, it was able to export quite cheaply and sell a lot of things in particular to the US, which would create a huge current account deficit with the US as well. Washington didn't like this. And in 1985, um, Japan and Washington negotiated the Plaza Accords, which led to a great strengthening of the yen, making it more expensive for, for Japan to export to the US. At the same time with the strengthening, land prices began shooting up. So it goes really back to property in this sense. And le- because land was a, a collateral, used, being used as collateral for loans driving this capitalist expansion. And the result was extraordinarily precarious. It was a huge real estate bubble in which um, the um, Imperial Palace grounds in Tokyo were at one point worth 
the, enti- the, the price of the entire state of California, real estate-wise. It was just astounding, the sort of numbers that were going on in terms of real estate valuation at the point. Now, this was all very obvious to the um, bureaucrats running the show, especially at the Bank of Japan. And they tried to very cautiously let some of the steam out of the bubble. But as soon as they did that, the whole thing simply collapsed. Um, that was in um, 1989, 1990. And at first, nobody was quite sure what was going on because Japan had been posting phenomenal growth. It looked like this enormous powerhouse. It was going to be Japan as number one and potentially overtaking the US as well. But after a few years in the 1990, when after a couple of years of zero growth, people began to think, oh, maybe this is a more permanent situation than we had expected. What was happening was it turned out the the collapse of the real estate bubble produced a lot of what were known as zombie companies, that is companies that had far greater debts than assets, but at the same time were too big to fail. These were some of the most the biggest companies in all of Japan. And so you have these these companies that that are worth less than um, what their their debts are employing people and driving the country forward. And what this has meant after, you know, since the 1990s, actually for the, for almost 30 years from about 1990, Japan had no inflation. Prices remained the same. People described it as a completely comatose economy. There was very small growth, but it was not nearly what was going on before. And it is astounding to think that prices, the price of something in 1990 would be the exact same price as it was in 2015 very often. What this meant, the shift from um, high-paced economic growth to just simply economic stagnation, was there was a strong attention shift, this turning point, to um, focusing on social problems. And these were brought to a head by a couple of major crises. One was the great Kobe earthquake of 1994, massive in a, in a very industrialized part of Japan or a very built up part of Japan, almost foreshadowing what's predicted to happen in Tokyo in the next couple of decades. Tokyo has had regular massive earthquakes and it's been a while since it's had one and it's definitely on the docket for one um, coming up in this in this lifetime for most people. There was also the sarin gas attack in 1995 in the um, Tokyo subway, killing a, number, a couple of dozen people, which nobody expected in you know, what was the, considered a, a very kind of socially harmonious place. Social problems like very, very low birth rates, birth rates below replacement rate, came to the fore along, alongside very high life expectancy. So if you you know those famous um, sort of demographic pyramid structures of how populations look with a lot of young people, and then it makes a, a smaller, smaller top as you get the fewer, fewer old people. In Japan, it looks kind of like a column because there's so few young people and so many old people as well, which does have a, a big impact um, economically in terms of employment. It's interesting to think through these issues vis-a-vis the West because some of the, the issues Japan has been facing for the past 30 years aren't exactly the same. So, for example, right now, there's massive inflation in the West. You know, in some countries, it's over 10%. Whereas in Japan, it's only about 3.5% at the moment. It's considered very high, but still, 3.5% is a number that would make the, U- the UK or the US quite jealous. However, it's been dealing with a lot of the problems that for many decades now that the West is now beginning to face including things like very low growth economies, the um, upshot of massive monetary easing and um, the debt to GDP ratio in Japan is is pretty astounding. Um, 
much higher than even Greece's at the height of the Greek financial crisis. The, the debt to GDP ratio in Japan is 270% right now. It just prints money, prints money, prints money. Japan's population has been stagnating, which we also see in Western countries. Social services have been crumbling since the 1990s as well. And so a lot of these issues that Japan has been dealing with for some time, I think, are now hitting the West in very interesting ways. It's important to remember, though, that none of this has generated as much social protest as one might expect. There hasn't been a very strong anti-capitalist movement. There hasn't been a very strong sort of um, gender equality movement. There's a little bit more movement on um, gay rights right now. But, um, you know, youth employment prospects are getting worse and worse. Um, and um, But nonetheless, there's not a lot of people hitting the streets about that, and certainly not compared to the sort of social upheaval or social protests seen in the 1950s and 60s, where sometimes you could get a million people on the streets protesting U.S. imperialism, for example. So in that sense, the crash of the economic, economic bubble around 1990 was a major turning point, not only economically, but also socially and politically as well. Tonight on Frontline, a critical essay on the Japanese challenge to American business. Just as the bubble was about to burst... PBS broadcast a gloomy documentary about economic competition between the US and Japan. Some critics say Japanese companies are practicing predatory capitalism. Others argue they're only beating us at our own game. We need a desert storm from American industry. Tonight on Frontline, losing the war with Japan. Fourth of July in the year of Desert Storm. The celebration America had been waiting for since Vietnam. The loudest applause this day was for the heroes of the Gulf War. The men and women who proved what everyone knew in their hearts. That Americans and American technology can't be beat. That America is still number one. But the victory in the Gulf helped disguise a disturbing fact about American power. The United States has been fighting another war, a war it wasn't ready for, a war that it is losing. The Gulf War was showing off our smart bombs in order to disguise our dumb VCRs. Professor Chalmers Johnson from the University of California, San Diego, studies Japanese business. We've been fighting against Karl Marx since uh, uh, the uh, late 1940s. We got Karl Marx, he's dead. But some guys that weren't playing that game have blindsided both of us. I mean, the Cold War is over and Japan won. By 2010, the period drama Mad Men could depict anti-Japanese sentiment in American business as a relic of times past. Mr. Kamura, Mr. Saito, this is Roger Sterling. And this is their translator, Akira Takahashi. We give each firm $3,000 for a competitive presentation. In this packet are the conditions for the competition. We don't want any conditions. We want it to be unconditional. Akira, go ahead, tell them what I said. Roger, stop it. These men are our guests. I know exactly who these men are. You think you can just come in here and we'll fawn all over you? We beat you and we'll beat you again. Sayonara. If you could only know my embarrassment. 
His wife's very sick. He's been drinking a lot. Why do you think the Liberal Democratic Party has been able to perpetuate its hegemony over the past three decades, which is long after the passing of the Cold War context that originally shaped the party? It's a very interesting question, because in some ways, if you just look at um, who's in power, the Liberal Democratic Party, the LDP, looks like it's a complete powerhouse. I mean, it's been in power almost continuously since 1955, with only two very short hiatuses, 1993 to 1994 and 2009 to 2012. But beyond that, it's been in power for over 60 years, as, as as you properly note. However, if one, you know, looks behind that facade, one sees actually its grasp on power is more fragile than one might expect. So it hasn't had an outright majority since 1963. It's been almost 60 years since it's held an outright majority. It, you know, it's had to rule with various coalitions. For the most part, it rules with the Komeito party, a sort of Buddhist uh, a party organized by a Buddhist group, basically. But I think also looking at the power of the LDP, it's important to look at its origins too, which comes out of a particular post-war configuration as well. And um, on top of the U.S.'s own interference in Japan's democratic processes. So after World War II, the um, conservative parties and the socialist parties were pretty much head to head. The socialists and the communists were actually fairly popular parties um, in Japan. But the U.S. obviously saw this as um, a great threat to it. There were two, by the 1950s, it looked as though the two main socialist parties would actually be able to take power. And this was, of course, of great concern to the U.S. And so what it did was help forge an alliance between the two main conservative parties, which were the Liberal Party and the Democratic Party, and it basically in 1955, it threw a lot of money at both parties so that they could get their electoral machines running and um, enabled those two parties, the Liberal and the Democratic parties, to form a coalition and take over the government. Interestingly, within all of this, the mastermind behind this um, was a man named Nobusuke Kishi, who was the grandfather of Shinzo Abe and is actually quite himself quite influential on Abe's own politics. And basically what Kishi did as the head of the LDP at the time was mastermind the system for funneling this money from the government into infrastructure projects in a way that would get key supporters out and vote. And he sort of built an electoral kind of pork barrel politics, electoral machine around that. And it lasted for some time, but, you know, has like many parties in power continuously um, gradually lost popularity so that it's been ruling in a coalition government for the past 50 years, in effect. And in a way, its power today is due not only to people's adherence to to the party itself, but also to really the weakness of the opposition more than anything else. The opposition parties in Japan, none of them at the moment have more than, say, 15% of the vote. Um, They're in absolute shambles. And there's no real challenge to the LDP coming from outside it at all. And so what that's meant in terms of the LDP is that any kind of challenge to it has come actually within the party rather than from outside it. And the main challenger to the LDP has been a longstanding member of the LDP itself, namely um, Ichiro Ozawa. And the two times that the LDP lost power, namely in 1993 and in 2009, 
it wasn't due to electoral politics, really. It was really due to Ozawa masterminding a transformation and takedown of the LDP itself. So that first one in 1993, Ozawa managed to get... um, the first time the LDP ever lost power, he basically got a vote of no confidence through the parliament um, that split the government apart. You know, the the LDP, there was, you know, a lot of corruption going on, 1970s, 1980s, you know, at one point, you know, several million dollars worth of gold pars were found in the prime minister's house, for example. So people were getting fed up with all this corruption. Ozawa led a vote of no confidence against his own party that brought down um, and split the LDP and basically a coalition government of seven parties. So it was completely unwieldy, took over the government at that at that point in time. Of course, it didn't last too long. It fell apart. And after that, we see something that we're seeing now in the wake of um, the end of uh Shinzo Abe's tenure, namely a continuous rapid turnover at the the helm of political power. You know, prime ministers changing almost every single year um, in Japan, and it's not not too surprising. So out of out of all of this, these kind of political transformations that are are connected both to U.S. imperialist politics as well as to um, changes in in the economy and um, kind of backbench movements within the LDP. It highlights a couple of things. One would be that ideology is not a major motivating factor in Japanese politics. You know, you get parties from across the political spectrum forming coalitions when they can. We also see that the the voice of the public hasn't been that much that all that important in forcing real change in politics. It's not the popular vote that brought down the LDP, but actually machinations from within the party. So we see, re, in a way, real change coming from politicians who are able to really deftly manipulate informal structures. Ozawa did that with a lot of savviness. And actually Shinzo Abe was able to manipulate those informal structures with a lot of savviness as well, cementing his term in power um, for a very long time too. In Tokyo, a communist-led mob of 20,000 besieges the parliament building. The parties of the Japanese left played a central role in the massive protests against the US-Japan Security Treaty at the end of the 1950s. This American newsreel commentator was horrified by the spectacle. ...attacks again and again, finally breaking into the parliament compound itself. In their attack, they battled police like a trained assault force. Sixteen police trucks were burned by the mob in its rampage that continued far into the night. This was the unexpected rejoinder to official announcements of strict security measures to stop such demonstrations and guarantee the president's safety during his visit. The outcome, a request by the Kishi government that Ike cancel his planned visit, a triumph for the red mob that was greeted with delight throughout the communist world. The radical minority that bowed the government next announced it would continue rioting to prevent ratification of the defense treaty and to force the resignation of Premier Kishi a humiliating and costly defeat for the free world that casts in doubt the political future of Japan, a key ally. What has been the experience of Japan's left-wing parties, the socialists and the communists, since the end of the Cold War? Yeah, indeed. The the history of Japan's left-wing parties is somewhere between heartening and inspiring and quite depressing. It, very interestingly, even though Japan you know, was occupied by the U.S. for many years, 
after the war, the the U.S. did allow um, the socialists and and communist parties to reemerge. They had been forbidden since the 1930s or earlier to to exist. But the U.S. did allow them to reemerge, and they became very, very popular. So the Japan Socialist Party, the JSP, started off in the early post-war years getting about a third of the popular vote. And it was the key opposition party, you know, for a very long time. You know, gradually its um, proportions slid to about um, 20%. And in the 1960s, it saw a more centrist faction sort of break away. But the Japan Socialist Party up until the 1990s was hugely, hugely important, even if, you know, gradually, in a sense, losing steam. It took a major hit, however, um, with the end of the Cold War, you know, which left it effectively ideologically adrift. I mean, what is an anti-capitalist stance supposed to be once you lose um, the key sort of models of a potential communist um, mode of organization of a, of a country? But the the real thing that took apart, I mean, the JSP the, these days is virtually meaningless, which is absolutely astounding given its strength historically across the second half of the, the 20th century. And basically it, it did itself in. It sold itself out in um 1994, when that moment when um, the Japanese, the LDP lost power and a coalition of um, seven opposition parties came together, they couldn't hold themselves together and they fell apart. And so what happened was the LDP and the main opposition, the JSP, the, the socialists, formed a coalition. And in doing that, the socialists were able to get their first prime minister into power, Tomichi Murayama. He, you know, Japan had a socialist prime minister um, for about a year and a half, but in becoming prime minister, it he completely sold out. For the JSP, this this coalition with the LDP was complete suicide. The LDP had virtually every single major cabinet position. The prime minister itself, the office traditionally has been fairly, fairly weak, so he could get very little done. And on top of it, Murayama sold out disavowed virtually every single plank of the JSP platform. So the JSP had long said that an army or national self-defense force was completely unconstitutional. Um, And that's a very important part of post-war Japan. Article 9 of the Constitution says that Japan forever renounces the right of war. And um, there's been a lot of controversy about the status of its own self-defense forces, which are fairly large um, because Japan's economy is fairly big. It doesn't spend too much more than 1% of its um, revenue on the army. But because it's a rich country, it does make for a pretty big, you know, de facto army. But the constitution says Japan doesn't have the right of war. And the socialists had long said that this army was unconstitutional. The socialists also declared that the Kimi Gayo and the Hinomaru, the national flag and the national anthem, would be national anthems. They had been very controversial after the war, particularly given the history of Japan imperialist expansion. The JSP had also traditionally said, you know, we're not going to use nuclear energy. We've been, you know, we've suffered the horrors of atomic bombing. We're not going to turn to this. But it disavowed that again and said that we would turn to, we would support the um, um, nuclear energy. So everything that really made the Socialist Party somewhat, you know, a critical Socialist Party, what they gave up during that moment of of coalition with the JSP, a short year and a half, it completely um, disemboweled itself. The result of this coalition was the LDP shot back into power. Its major opposition party had just sold itself out, and there were no more effective challengers. So after this, in the 1990s and the early 2000s, we see the LDP in power, 
fairly status quo policy responses, and voters who are becoming increasingly apathetic because there's no ideological difference between them. Now, what's happened to the JSP in all of this? Well, it renamed itself the SDP, the Social Democratic Party of Japan. It's got all of one representative in the House of Representatives, and it has one representative in the House of Counselors. And it's, you know, pretty much a non-entity. Now, interestingly, across all of this is the communists who are doing much, much better in in government right now than the socialists. Right now, they have about 25 representatives in the national government, and they get about 10% of the vote as well, especially when people are feeling very disaffected with what the LDP is doing. So in, in effect, it's, it's, a, it's a party that gets um, a lot of protest vote. And it does that because it's pretty much the only party in Japan with any kind of ideological integrity. And it's maintained that um, ever since the end of the, the Second World War. It started off, interestingly, supporting China against the Soviet Union. But by the 1970s, it began distancing itself from both of them. It has a very strong support for individual rights. It has a very strong anti-war position, a very strong anti-imperialist position, for example. And some cities like the city of Kyoto, it's been a very important strong party. And also among um, certain professions like teachers often support the Communist Party as well. And it remains quite true to its um, strong stance against American imperialism. So it's very clearly against ending the American, the very big American military presence in Japan. It supports same-sex marriage. It supports labor market protections and the like. And many people think that the main reason why it doesn't actually get more than, you know, 10, sometimes even 13% of the vote in recent years. But what kind of holds it back, many people think, is the the image issues coming out of the Cold War, that in a sense it needs, you know, some, as some would say, rebranding, or um, that the, the notion of um, communism can, can still carries too, too much negative weight um, to really get out the vote. But it still does surprisingly well. In 2008, Al Jazeera reported on the JCP's electoral supports and the wider social conditions generated by Japanese capitalism. 31-year-old Zenya works hard. He's on his feet for hours, handing out free samples to passers-by for a wage of 100 U.S. dollars a day. Zenya is known as a friter, one of tens of thousands of Japanese who no longer have permanent jobs. Zenya's happy with his lot, but others are worried that the old Japanese certainty of a job for life is fast disappearing. Some see them as casualties of a capitalist system that has reached its limits. Down the road from Zenya, the Communist Party is recruiting those who have grown disillusioned with the system. Uh, nowadays, Japan suffer, have suffered from big disease, serious disease, in my opinion. Uh, disease uh, such a uh, uh, growing uh, income disparities and uh, equality and uh, uh, so many problems. So we demand the Democratic change is quite necessary uh, in the framework of its capitalism. The pressure to succeed is so strong, says this labor lawyer, that some people work themselves to death. There's even a word for it, karoshi. The unity and harmony of the workers in the Japanese company is a kind of myth. In recent months, sales have jumped of a 1930s book about workers' struggles and their fight against oppression. 
All this has been good for the Communist Party, which says its membership has grown with 1,000 people signing up every month this year. 21-year-old Toshiyuki joined the Communists last month. He won't show his face on camera for fear of being discriminated against. People misunderstand us. We work so hard and yet things aren't getting better. The rich are well treated and the poor are pushed to the bottom of society. Unemployment in Japan is still relatively low, but it's rising. And because of the economic slowdown, quite a few who have lost their jobs end up on the streets. It's a problem Japanese society finds difficult to accept. What factors lay behind the quite spectacular electoral victory of the Democratic Party in 2009? And why did it nonetheless prove to be such an ephemeral moment in Japanese politics? Yeah, that election in 2009 was, was very interesting. It was the first time the Japanese electorate elected a party that wasn't the LDP to power. And part of that is is coming out of the wake of the collapse of the, the Socialist Party, the JSP. Once that ended in the 1990s, the main opposition party came in the form of the DJP, the Democratic Party of Japan. And that that was a party that was formed out of, um, you know, merging a bunch of, of sort of smaller parties. And it was meant to be a sort of, you know, coming out of the 1990s, it's sort of looking to what Bill Clinton and Tony Blair were doing and describing itself as a sort of third force, basically a pro-capitalist party with some social protections. But what it did was but kind of pick and choose between the LDP platform and the JSP platform and in a kind of hodgepodge way. It didn't have any kind of ideological or policy coherence in terms of what it was doing. But it was able to get what's known as the, the floating urban vote. People who've moved to, from the countryside to big urban areas and are, are kind of looking, they don't have a, a clear political ideology, but look look for something that in some ways sort of represents their views or their kind of anti, you know, sometimes disaffection with the establishment. That's what the Komeito party, the, the coalition party of the LDP often gets. But what was interesting was that the DPJ, the Democratic Party of Japan, was able to get some of those votes too. And it was able to do that because the LDP, you know, from the 2000s was beginning after Koizumi, was beginning to look more and more dull. So Koizumi kind of, you know, led with a lot of charisma in in the early 2000s, you know, for a number of years. But after that came a string of lackluster leaders, you know, ruling for like a year or a year and a half or so. And people were just getting fed up with that. And that made the DPJ look more and more desirable. What that opened up then was the possibility for Ichiro Ozawa, whom we saw before from the early 1990s, to lead the party into taking the upper house for the first time. In effect, throwing the government in the gridlock because the LDP had the lower house, the DPJ had the upper house, and they couldn't get anything through. And then they were able to aim to get the prime ministership in 2009. In all of this, Oza was hoping to finally claim the helm of state, but he was brought down by you know a fairly minor scandal, fundraising scandal, and he was pretty much a fairly controversial figure himself, although a very, very um, politically savvy one. So effectively leading the DPJ into power was Yukio Hatoyama, who came in and um, won by a landslide in 2009. In fact, it was the worst, he, he led the party to the worst defeat that the LDP has ever 
suffered. They lost, I think, two thirds of their seat in the election of 2009. So it looked like the DPJ, which had, you know, had gotten, you know, a huge amount of the vote, uh, about 300 seats out of about, uh, out of nearly 500, would be sailing through in terms of all the um, reforms it, it wanted to put through. An overwhelming vote for the opposition, bringing to an end more than half a century of one-party rule. This report from Al Jazeera captured the short-lived moment of triumph for the DPJ. DPJ candidate Kaida Banri defeated Japan's finance minister, who had held his Tokyo seat for more than four decades. I want to make a better society for Japan, to make citizens feel more comfortable. I look at August the 30th as a new start. Across the country, seats formerly held by the ruling Liberal Democratic Party fell. The victory absolute and overwhelming. From the DPJ's leader, Yukio Hatoyama, the man likely to be the future prime minister of Japan. Only humble words. We don't think this is just a victory for the Democratic Party of Japan, but a victory for the people. We feel the people are very angry about the current national situation. In defeat, Taro Aso, who served only as prime minister for one year, took sole responsibility and vowed to step down as leader of his party. I feel very responsible for the result. I am very disappointed as we are only halfway through our economic reforms. I believe people are very dissatisfied with the economy and we could not regain their trust. Now, Hatoyama, as um, the, the prime minister at the time, wanted to make a couple of key transformations in terms of the organization of Japanese bureaucracy and foreign policy. So traditionally in Japan, bureaucrats form a lot of the policy making, form a lot of the policies, not the politicians. In a sense, and what um, Hatoyama wanted to do was to have the politicians drive policy making, making, making it more, um, in a sense, reactive to the voter wishes um, rather than just what bureaucrats want to engineer. But the bureaucrats, you know, which were um, incredibly powerful, of course, really rankled at this sort of attempt to undermine their power. The other thing that um, Hatoyama wanted to do was um, to reach out more to Asia as a balance to U.S. influence. And uh, part of that, for example, was um, uh, Japan had has a, um, a huge military presence in, in Okinawa. Americans occupied more than 15% of the islands of Okinawa. And in fact, the, the Americans um, occupied, fully occupied Okinawa up until 1972. It's only in 1972 that the Americans fully returned Okinawa to Japan, but they still have huge military bases against uh, on large swaths of the country. And in Okinawa, it's, it's the key place where you see a strong anti-imperialist social movement still today trying to get the Americans out. So the U.S. wanted to relocate its main army base at Futenma to a much bigger base at Hennoko. And um, this had been, you know, shot down by locals for, for many reasons. But Hatoyama went strongly against that, saying that he would not support the, the change of the U.S. military base. So the U.S. was against the D- DPJ. So you have both the bureaucrats rebelling against the, the DPJ's um, attempt to put through any new policy measures and the Americans putting a lot of foreign policy pressure on the party as well. And all of this left the DPJ incredibly embattled. Um, the media also came out strongly, strongly against Hatoyama, and he ended up stepping down after only nine months. 
And in his place came Naoto Khan, who basically reversed everything that he was trying to put through, um, turning again to the U.S. and returning to the importance of the bureaucracy and running all of this. And then finally came the, the last remedy. So basically ideologically sold out again to the extent that there was any kind of ideology holding the party together. And then came the triple disaster of um, March 2011 um, with the the tsunami, the nuclear reactor incident, and the massive earthquake in Tohoku. And, uh, you know, the the DPJ just couldn't handle dealing with the disaster on top of, you know, not doing much that was different from the LDP in, in the first place. So they were losing more and more support. And then finally, in 2012, the prime minister decides to dissolve parliament and hold new elections. And in these elections, the DPJ just had one of the worst defeats of any ruling party in Japanese history. They lost about three quarters of their seats, while the LDP tripled the number of seats that they, they held and saw Shinzo Abe coming to power and then subsequently holding power for longer than any um, post-war prime minister. So in a sense, what what this, this this story of looking at the opposition in Japan, we see oppositions coming in for some time, making some headway, but either undoing themselves by um, going back to old party platforms or, or for, forming coalitions with the LDP and then completely falling apart, enabling the LDP to keep power. So in a sense, the power of the LDP is really one of the weakness of the opposition, um, you know, keeping it together over time. Despite the eclipse of the DPJ, opposition to the U.S. military presence on Okinawa has not faded away. Franz van Kat carried this news story in 2016. The searing heat couldn't stop 60,000 people from protesting at a sports stadium in the Okinawan capital of Naha on the 19th of June. They were there for one reason, to demand that the U.S. close its military facilities on the island, which is home to more than half the 47,000 U.S. troops stationed in Japan. It has already been too long. Okinawa does not need U.S. military bases. They should leave. I'm old, but I came here today for my children and my grandchildren's sakes. The bases have to go. The prefecture's governor, Takeshi Onaga, is a prominent figure in the anti-base movement. The central government has to understand that the inhabitants' anger has reached its limit. We cannot forgive that Okinawa's people shoulder the burden of U.S. bases and make such a huge sacrifice. The demonstration was called after a former U.S. Marine was arrested in connection with the rape and murder of 20-year-old Irina Shimabukuro. The young woman who was killed was about my age. It could have been me. It could have been my friend. President Barack Obama, you have to free Japan. The protesters observed a moment of silence for Shimabukuro, whose murder sparked anger throughout Japan. Some people travelled a long way to come and pay their respects at the spot where her body was found. I flew 2,500 kilometres to come here. Now that I'm here at this place, I feel even more anger and sadness. To what extent can we say that neoliberal economic policies have been enacted by successive Japanese governments since the 1990s? Yeah, it's an interesting question whether or not policy changes are neoliberal or so, because 
or even, for example, often neoliberal is connected to populist as well. But if we look at the case of Japan, we see that big categories like neoliberal or populist don't always square completely with some of the transformations. There's often a neighboring uh, causes or reasons that can be found as well. So while overall, I think some of the transformations can come under this umbrella head of neoliberal, if we break things down, we see it, it, it looks a little bit more complicated than than what these um, sort of headline uh, concepts capture. So so one, one example with, of this would be um, deregulation. Ever since the 1990s and the economic doldrums, um, Japan has gone through large-scale deregulation. Um, by the mid-1990s, when it was clear that the economy was flatlining, there was what was known as the Big Bang Reform Package that was going to liberalize um, Finance, for example, opening up foreign exchange and asset management and, you know, allowing more foreign competition into these things. We see by the end of the 1990s, airlines are deregulated. We see telecoms deregulated, for example. Um, Labor markets get deregulated as well. Historically, like if you think of Japan in the late 20th century, there was this image of lifetime employment, that if you got a job, um, with a major company, you were with that company for life and you're completely protected. You didn't have to worry about anything else. It'd be very, very hard to fire you on a sort of lifetime employment contract. But by the end of the 1990s, we even see big business trying to get rid of these and aiming to get only 10% on lifetime employment contracts and about 70 to 80% of workers going into contract work or so. And right now in Japan, I think about 70, 60% of the workforce is in contract work you know, work without a secure future. Now, this kind of contract work has has a longer history um, to it. Um, you know, women could traditionally have been in, in a lot of contract work. But what we see shifting from the late 1990s into the early 2000s is more males are going into contract work and more young people are going into contract work, sort of starting off life with a lot of precarity. Now, this has had huge um, impact in terms of social welfare protections, um, for example, because a lot of contract work doesn't come with the sort of pensions and healthcare benefits that that people are used to. This has also come with a great rise in inequality on top of it. Among OECD countries, this is often um, often not um, noticed, but Japan is one of the most unequal countries within the OECD used to have this myth of everybody being uh, middle class, but that certainly isn't the case anymore. And poverty, the poverty rate right now is about 15% as well on average. And about a third of elderly people, a huge proportion of Japanese population, it lives in poverty now. And uh, coming on, on top of all this deregulation, and, and it's hit people very, very hard, what's often often also associated with neoliberalism would be rolling back welfare provisions. Now, if we look at the characteristics of, of um, social welfare in, in Japan, it's marked by a couple of things. One is traditionally it's been fairly low spending by the state. The state hasn't really done much. Instead, social welfare has been largely provided by employers, big businesses, um, as well as um, community level and family level um, sort of social support networks, which are which traditionally have been fairly, fairly strong. As well, and on top of it, to the extent that businesses or government provide social welfare, it's generally focused on people who are being economically productive. So it's people who are empl- who are in employment get better 
social welfare um, protection, often through business pension programs or better health insurance or whatever, whereas those who are unemployed or retired or whatever, um, or not retired, but widowed, for example, get less protection in general. That means that Japan, for example, spends much, much less on um, unemployment benefits to help people out who aren't being economically productive. Now, all of this um, has begun to be rolled back or the, the, the social welfare net gets rolled back as people move into more temporary work because it's the f- people who are on permanent contracts who get you know, the better pensions, the better health care, et cetera, the better bonuses than, uh, than people um, who are unemployed who might not even get um, proper government support in, in all of this as well. And all of this in, has become noticeable in Japan in terms of what became a catchphrase um, a number of years back called kakusashakai, um, or uh, a divided society, um, one in which Japan is becoming more and more unequal as some people are falling, more and more people are, are falling behind during these times of, of deregulation. But to go back to your question, is this all neoliberal? In a way, it's a bit more, it's it's neoliberal to the extent that it's a patch to try to save capitalism. Um, and perhaps a patch that, um, you know, any sort of capitalist country needs to develop at a certain point in its own economic trajectory. But we can also find with some of these transformations, there can be other reasons as well. So, for example, the, the privatization of the postal system. Um, the, Japan's postal system um, traditionally has been the biggest bank in the world. Um, you, know, you know, Japan is a very big country. The post office also is a place where you could store your money. And it was all over Japan, even in rural areas. But it, so it was became an enormous bank. And it was basically a bank that was a slush fund for the LDP at the same time. And it, the LDP could use this postal bank to bankroll its national development projects and fuel its pork barrel politics, in effect. When Junichiro Koizumi came, became prime minister in the early 2000s, he was a real outsider within the, the LDP. Um, he only got elected because of changes in the electoral um, structure within the party. And a lot of people within the party didn't like him. And um, his own faction within the party was against this kind of pork barrel politics as well. So one of the first things Koizumi did or wanted to do was privatize the postal system, turn it, get it out of the... LDP's control, ironically, because it was a sort of slush on for the opposition factions to his own within the LDP. Um, so the privatization of the postal system could be seen as a neoliberal transformation, for example, but it could also be read as um, a form of jockeying uh, within the LDP to strengthen or diminish the power of individual factions as well. So in that sense, um, neo, you know, whether or not these transformations are neoliberal or not is, is a difficult question. I think overall, though, it's been um, much worse for inequality with, um, within Japan. The Tokyo Olympics in 2020 were supposed to be a great showcase for modern Japan. The Games had to be postponed for a year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. A sexist outburst from the chair of the organising committee then caused a new headache in 2021, as Al Jazeera reported. It's taken more than a week for Tokyo's Olympic chief to realise that you can't complain in a meeting that women talk too much and expect to get away with it. Yoshiro Mori had apologised but refused to stand down. 
But a groundswell of criticism from sponsors, athletes, diplomats and the Japanese public forced the former Prime Minister to resign. My inappropriate remarks caused turmoil. I'm sincerely sorry for causing trouble for so many, including organising committees and everyone involved in the Olympics. As long as I remain in this position, it causes trouble. It would ruin everything we've built up until now, and this cannot be allowed. How does the status of women in Japan today compare to the other highly developed capitalist states? Well, in a sense, it's pretty pathetic if you look at women in in positions of power or in strong positions of leadership within business even. In the national government, women hold like usually around 10 to 15 percent of positions. In business and management roles, women hold only about 15 percent of positions. About a third of all major firms in Japan have absolutely no female executives at all. So even the targets for increasing the number of women, which will be you know something like we're going to double the number of women to 20 percent, the targets themselves are, are pretty pathetic. And this is all kind of interesting, given, given again, the um, impact of World War II, because after World War II, women actually drained out of the workforce. There were many more women working in Japan in the early 20th century than there were in the second half of the 20th century. In part, that was because of the, the great economic boom. So families could rely on the earnings of only what was often a male breadwinner. It was also due to the decline in agriculture where, you know, women often worked as well, helping, you know, doing, doing work around the farm, etc. And so the, the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s saw the emergence of what was known as the um, Sengyo Shufu, the professional housewife, women whose main goal was to take care of the house and make sure that the kids did very, very well at school and got into the best schools ever. And that, you know, the, the professional wife that was caring for the aging grandparents and doing all the household chores and all of that. So it was, you know, women really sort of ru- ruling the home, also very often ruling the um, the wallet of the home as well. They often had more control over economic spending than the male breadwinner did. And probably some women wanted and enjoy it. But, you know, some for, for many women, there wasn't really much of a choice. And in some ways, the system also encouraged this. If you take, for example, the way that pensions operate in Japan, if, if say, you know, you have like a, a stereotypical nuclear family and the man is in a or the husband is in um, a protected contract job and he's getting a very nice pension scheme. And health health insurance, that pension scheme will cover the whole family. But if his wife is earning more than about 10,000 pounds a year, she comes off that pension scheme. So this means that, you know, and it would have to get her own. That's going to be less, not not as good in effect. So in a sense, the system would encourage women to get part-time jobs in which they earned up to about 10,000 pounds a year, but not too much more than that, because, you know, it just made more economic sense to stay on the better pension scheme um, of the husband. And this this applied to health insurance as well. So there were a lot of ways in which the system made it sort of more rational for women to work in part-time jobs and not earn too much money while they were also taking care of the family and, and doing everything else as well. Now, obviously, this leads to a big loss of, you know, in just brute economic terms, a potential labor power. And in the 1990s, as the economy was slowing, there there was um, 
the passage of more equal employment opportunity laws and these sorts of things. But these equal opportunity laws were were pretty much toothless in terms of their operation. And, um, you know, because there were no real um, punishments or sticks against companies that um, didn't uh, put women in career jobs. What companies would traditionally do is put women into, quote unquote, pink collar jobs, temporary work, short-term work, not promote them because they would assume that as soon as a woman got married or as soon as she got pregnant, she would quit the job. And very often companies would pressure women to quit their job at those points as well. So you end up also with companies' employment structures encouraging women into um, working in the household and doing a lot of part-time work on the side as well. And so, um, and, and this remains the case to today with um, pretty astounding um, figures in comparison to the rest of the OECD, let alone very, very wealthy countries within the OECD. What policies has the Japanese state adopted for dealing with immigration over recent decades? Yeah, the immigration question is, is very interesting, especially since the Japanese population has been in decline for many years. And a lot of people will say, well, why not just let in more immigrants to deal with the decline in population? I mean, it's a huge economic risk not to have population growth for an economy. And if again, if we look at the history of this, particularly after World War II, we see during World War II, especially during the end years of the war, there was a lot of um, forced labor migration coming, coming from the occupied areas in um, Korea and in, in Taiwan. And after World War II, there was a lot of pressure of, um, for people to go back. Not everybody did. But you, so you did end up with a population of Taiwanese and Korean um, former colonial subjects um, living within Japan. They, they were stripped of their um, Japanese citizenship. Uh, but many of them didn't want to go back um, because these were very authoritarian countries at the time, and especially the Koreans were um, descended into to war very quickly after that. So there was a small population of, um, you know, about less than a million former colonial subjects in the immediate post-war years in Japan. But, you know, obviously, as, a, as the economy began to take off in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of labor pressure and employment pressure, and a lot of business were calling for more workers. But rather than bringing more foreigners into Japan, what happened was that businesses went to the foreigners. So we saw a lot of Japanese companies in the 60s and 70s shifting operations over to Southeast Asia and using cheaper workers over there to fill labor market needs. Um, Occasionally, there was some opening up, um, getting workers from places like like um, the Philippines, um, or in the early 1990s, there was a scheme to get people of um, Japanese descent who were living in Latin America, people, had, you know, Japanese, the, the descendants of Japanese people who had migrated in the early 20th century to places like Brazil or so. The Japanese government tried to get them back as workers, thinking that, oh, they'll be you know, just like us and, and easy to assimilate and, and all of that. But still, those numbers overall have been very, very small, so that foreigners are still only about 2% of the Japanese population, which is really tiny um, in comparison to a place like the US or, or the UK or, or even Russia or, or so. And, and the, the government isn't looking for it. So even though the Philippine government has been trying to lobby the Japanese government to take more Filipino nurses, for example, the Japanese government has been very, very reluctant to do this, often because the nursing lobby within Japan 
um, pushes against that as well. To some degree, they've allowed um, some, you know, de facto guest workers or temporary labor, temporary um, low-paid temporary labor migrants in, in in the form of trainees. But these programs haven't really expanded either. They they like to allow in students, and they've been aiming to get about two or three hundred thousand Korean and largely now Chinese students into the country because. The low birth rates mean that universities don't have enough Japanese youth to fill all the places that they have. And there are some schemes to keep um, graduates, foreign graduates of Japanese universities on for a couple of years. But it's also very hard to become um, a Japanese citizen. There's a lot of de facto rejection of citizenship applications, and it doesn't allow dual citizenship either. So in that sense, Japan remains still fairly closed in terms of... um, immigration, and even with refugees. Some years, it only approves a few dozen refugee applications as well. It prefers instead to throw a lot of money at the UNHCR rather than to allow in refugees. So it's remained fairly closed border since the end of its imperial expansion in, in 1945. In 2016, the BBC carried this report on the status of asylum seekers in Japan. Locked up in the East Japan Migrant Detention Center. This place looks and feels very much like a prison. Right now, 300 people are being held behind bars here. Most have committed no crime. But we are not allowed to see them, let alone interview them. This man knows exactly what it's like to be locked up in one of those cells. Today, Erin Yildirim is happily married with a new baby. But after fleeing to Japan from Turkish Kurdistan, he spent a year and a half locked up and under daily pressure to leave. Every day they told me I was going to be deported. They said, don't build up any hopes. It's better you go home voluntarily. But if you don't, we will deport you. To me, it was no different from Guantanamo Bay. When refugees are detained in Japan, it's the same as prison. They may not physically beat you, but they bully you mentally every day. Fifteen years later, Erin has still not been granted asylum. He can only stay in Japan because his wife is Japanese. Japan rejects more than 99% of refugee applications. In the last year, it has accepted just three refugees from Syria. Japan's asylum system appears designed to grind people down, to get them to leave. The detention center cells are decorated with messages, this one in Chinese. In Japan, foreign refugees have no human rights, it says. How important is the alliance with Washington for Japanese state managers in the wider contemporary East Asian context? Well, the U.S. remains of fundamental importance, and and if it's not even increasing in importance for Japan, and particularly since the 2000s. What's been interesting in all of this and looking at the the Japan-U.S. alliance is that you, you know, the social, the communists have been very, very critical of this from the very beginning. Socialists initially fairly critical, but then rolling back on that. But even within the conservatives, there's been a faction that's wanted more independence from the U.S. 
you know, wanting to have an independent military, for example. Um, even Kishida, Shinzo Abe's um, grandfather was prime minister for a stint, was in some ways um, pushing against and wanting more independence from the U.S., particularly in the immediate post-war years. At the same time, especially with the rise of China, there's been a strong uh, wing within the conservative party that has increasingly embraced the U.S. too. And we saw this with um, Junichiro Koizumi in the early 2000s when he was hanging out with um, George Bush very closely, I think even um, dressing up like Elvis Presley and um, uh, doing sort of baseball things, but really forging a much more closer military alliance with the U.S. as well. We see this also in terms of the way that um, Shinzo Abe has, um, you know, one might think that um, in terms of the military expansion that that he was leading while prime minister, enabling Japan to, for example, um, come to the aid of, of foreign countries under attack or allowing Japan to ex- produce um, weaponry for export, for example. The U.S. actually really likes that. In It's in the U.S. interest for Japan to be building up its military and to be expanding its military because the U.S. wants this to happen um, under the auspices of what it terms interoperability. So it wants the Japanese military to look like the U.S. military, although being paid for by Japan, so that if any if push comes to shove, the U.S. can go in and effectively command and control the Japanese military as well. And this plays very well with a strong streak of conservatives um, within Japan, too. So the U.S. doesn't mind if Japan revises Article 9 of the Constitution. It more or less supports it. And it supports Japanese um, military expansion, too, which the conservatives like as well. So with with the rise of China and potential, um, you, know, you know, North Korea sometimes lobs a missile over towards Japan and all of that, this notion of, of forging an ever closer alliance with the U.S. is, is very, very important. And this comes out, it, this kind of anti-China stance, among, particularly among the conservatives in Japan, comes out even strongly in, in terms of what happened with the um, Trans-Pacific Partnership, the T- TPP, which um, Trump pulled out of in the U.S. It was supposed to be an everybody but China trading block. But Japan is still trying to get that through. It still wants to see an everybody but China trading block occur in East Asia. Um, ideally with the U.S., but even without the U.S. if possible. So I think part of the story of its strong embrace of the U.S. alliance is also the fear of China among um, particular segments within um, Japanese ruling classes. Japan's longest-serving prime minister was assassinated in July. Japanese politics was rocked by the assassination of former prime minister Abe Shinzo. DW News reported on the controversy about Abe's state funeral. Abe's funeral has become a flashpoint for public anger over political scandal and opposition to Abe's successor from the same party, current Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. I think Abe was a terrible politician. And Prime Minister Kishida said he would listen to the opinions of Japanese people. But he is ignoring opinion polls that show more than half of the public is against the state funeral. Abe's assassination in July triggered a series of revelations about the current ruling Liberal Democratic Party's links to the Unification Church, a religious movement regarded by some as a cult whose members are often known as Moonies. I was so shocked to find out how deeply the Unification Church has been involved in Japanese politics. This is very dangerous. 
I think we should not allow this to be happening. When Abe resigned two years ago, he was deeply unpopular after a series of scandals. But it was his close association with the church that was the alleged motive for his murder. His killer says his own mother had been defrauded by the Unification Church, leaving their family destitute. Abe's killing threw a spotlight on the church's deep connection to Japan's ruling party, the LDP. Prime Minister Kishida apologised and promised to sever his party's links to the church. But the fallout for the LDP, his government and him personally, has been hugely damaging. How would you characterise the legacy of Abe Shinzo for his party and for Japanese politics in general? Abe Shinzo was certainly a key political leader, much more so than anybody would have guessed in his first stint in power in the mid-2000s. He was in power for about a year and ended up um, quitting because of um, gastrointestinal issues. But nobody expected him to come back to power, let alone hold power, longer than any prime minister in the post-war era. I mean, he was really incredibly fundamental uh, in bringing about some some important changes within Japan. So even though he stepped down right before his assassination, Japan still lost a very important politician because even outside of power, he was the one who's controlling the scene. He became effectively what's known there as a shadow shogun, ruling the biggest faction as well. So his his assassination in 2022, also left, I think, a big dent in in Japanese politics. Politically, what he was able to do was um, really amass a lot more power under the um, under the the prime minister's position, getting a lot of control over who would be the head of particular um, bureaucratic positions, making them political appointments rather than just people rising up within the bureaucracy. So, in effect, in effect putting his own, almost large, although he had some women, very conservative women, putting his own people into positions of power in each of the individual bureaucratic offices. He did a lot to expand um, military possibilities uh, within Japan as well. He restarted nuclear energy, which had been stopped after the triple disaster of the... um, in 2011. And he did a lot to um, throw Japan back into the arms of of the US after the DPJ tried to create a little bit more distance there. Politically, however, and I think this is where his legacy is going to be remain one of the strongest, was he saw a very, very big rightward shift within a political system that was already pretty conservative. He did this, however, not really as a populist, although the way, you know after his assassination and the um, marking his death with a state funeral, which was very controversial in Japan to have a state funeral for basically an elected politician, it was a way of kind of mythifying or deifying his his um, his position in power. But for example, one of the Abe was a member of of an association called the Nippon Kaigi basically um, an ultra-conservative association that's that's not terribly big. It's about 40,000 people. But about 60% of parliamentarians under Abe were a member 
of of this very conservative group that basically wanted massive constitutional reform, wanted women in the house, called for an ideology, wanted no, you know, what they would consider to be an apologist vision of history that actually recognized Japanese imperial atrocities and the like. It's a very sort of ultra conservative um, organization that Abe was using to help get out the vote for himself. And in a way, What's interesting in terms of his own, both in terms of when he stepped down in his own death, is that the big thing that he wanted to get through might still happen. And that's namely the revision of of the constitution in Japan. So the Japanese constitution very famously had, um, it wasn't the the whole history of it, which um, John Dower covers very, very well. in the book Embasing Defeat, it wasn't, you know, simply written by the Americans and imposed. There's a, a slightly more complicated political game around it, but there's a very strong American influence on, on the Japanese constitution, which is short and fairly ambiguous compared to a lot of constitutions. So it's been reinterpreted, reinterpreted, reinterpreted with great flexibility, but hasn't been revised. And famously, Article 9, Japan is one in which Japan forever renounces the right of war as a sovereign nation. And that has been very important for Japanese national identity ever since the post-war years. However, its importance has been declining. So the number of people who think that Japan should never fight a war again, or, or whether they support that article in constitution, is now somewhere around 50% or so. And what Abe wanted to do was to revise that amendment, to, to do what actually Japan already has, which is to recognize that Japan's self-defense forces are actually an army. So in terms of the actual revision of Article 9, in a way it's kind of becoming honest about what its, its military really is in effect. But Abe wanted not just to revise Article 9 of the Constitution to recognize that Japan really does have an army, but he wanted to revise nearly every single article within it. And going back often, it's interesting to look at the LDP proposals for revising the Constitution, because they look, in some places, the wording is very like the Meiji Constitution that was the basis of the country that was driven by imperial expansion, um, bringing new territories un- under its its control and colonizing um, lots of places within Asia under a sort of very paternalistic um, rhetoric of recognizing the emperor as being um, outside of the law, for example, rolling back individual rights and protections, um, rolling back possibilities for free speech and protest against the government, et cetera, et cetera. So what Abe really wanted in all of this in revising the Constitution was a much more thoroughgoing change to the document that would be that if it were were to have gone through under him or if it were to go through in the future, because it's the one that the LDP is still keeping as part of its party platform would mean a massive overhaul and in terms of the organization of democracy in Japan and actually roll back in terms of um, democratic protections as well. Many thanks to Kristin Surak for that introduction to present day Japan. You can find some of her articles about Japanese politics on the Jacobin website. This Jacobin podcast is supported by the Left Book Club. It's a non-profit club with reading groups and events for a list of books that explore radical alternatives to capitalism. You can join the Left Book Club for just £6 a month. That's less than $8. You can also buy someone a gift membership. 
listeners to this podcast can get their first month free by going to leftbookclub.com and using the code WINFREE with all letters capitalized.